Hey everybody. Hey everybody. Hey everybody. It's me. Thorazine the Clown. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Dose Nation, where I will be talking with my old pal, Scotto. That's him there as Thorazine the Clown from Tales from the Tripside, which is an old DVD video that Scotto put together back in his crazy madcap days. Not that he isn't still crazy in madcap, he's just slightly less madcap than he used to be. We all get a little bit older and a little bit more mellow, uh, but as I was talking to Scotto, I realized that you can draw an unbroken line all the way from the early days of the alt-drugs Usenet group, which was back around in the early 1990s, all the way up straight to Trip Magazine and Dose Nation and this podcast you're listening to here today. And that straight line is Scotto Moore. Scotto is the organizational force that brought together that faction of the all-drugs community that was interested in psychedelics and put it together into a little cyber cult called Leary, which has endured for many years, although it's very fragmented at this point. Back in those days when we were all just crazy kids, Scotto was the only one with the charisma, the energy, the enthusiasm, and the organizing force to get a whole group of people to follow him into whatever crazy adventure he was doing, and he's still doing it. I just saw his latest video project, The Coffee Table which you can see now at thecoffeetable.tv. I went with my lovely wife, and we had many laughs. It was a good time. Low-budget web video production is sort of a new, evolving art form, and Scotto was right there at the beginning of it. When the uh, first video iPod players came out, the first broadband connections were available on the Internet, Scotto was trying to figure out a way to get video over the Internet. And uh, now here we are, many years later, and he's still making Internet videos, and they're very funny. You should go and check them out. After you listen to this podcast... Take a listen to our old pal, Scotto. Uh, we'll reminisce about some old Trip Magazine days, and then we'll talk about the coffee table and all of his other projects. Thanks a lot for listening, you guys. We will see you next week. Studio in Seattle with Scott O'Moore. Scott, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. I've known Scott for, well, in person I've known you for, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years now, and then online it even goes back farther than that. Um, for people familiar with Scott's name, he was the editor of Trip Magazine for, I think, almost the whole run, except for maybe issue one, and... Uh, he was the co-founder of Dose Nation. It was actually his idea to start a drug blog. And uh, he was the editor of Dose Nation for until we finally ran out of steam a couple of years right. ago. Yeah. And uh, But before that, there was something called Leary, which was an offshoot of the original alt-drugs news group. Is that correct? Way back in the midst of time. Yeah, and I think in um, 
1992, we were looking for people to talk to about psychoactives back before the World Wide Web existed. You, you meaning who, Leary? Uh, well, just mean? people in general. There were people looking for, you know, the levels of self-organization hadn't really bubbled past Usenet. I don't know if people even know what a news group is in the world. Yeah, today. before there was a World Wide Web, there, before there was web pages, there were things called news groups, and there was stuff called Gopher, <laughs> yeah. where you could request documents online. But Usenet was a place where that still exists, where there was places like alt drugs and alt drugs, psychedelics, where people could go and chat about different kinds of experiences. And I think uh, we probably met originally somewhere on an alt drugs board back in my old uh, CompuServe days. <laughs> right, I was on a Vax account at my university, and uh, I actually saw somebody posted to Facebook recently a, a whole like a dot matrix printout of here is how to access the University of Northern Iowa's computing resources and describing what Telnet meant and describing, you know, what, what, like you said, what Gopher meant and here's how email works. And, and, uh, you know, it's on that stripy green and white paper. And, and I had a bunch of people, you know, tagging me saying, yep, I heard about the internet from Scott. O. yep, me too. I heard about the internet from Scott. O. So that's kind of an evangelist, not simply about, psychedelics but certainly about the internet back in those days yeah and um the uh original uh, i like to say when people who want to know more about you i say the, the really interesting thing about scotto is he started the world's first internet drug cult first and last potentially first no i don't yeah, think it's the knows. last <laughs> internet drug cult and by internet drug cult i mean uh, a group of people that were gathered together around uh the, the cause of uh, doing drugs and learning about drugs so what uh, what year was it that you guys uh, split off and you started the uh, whole Leary brand? Was that your idea? Um, it was 1992, and um, yeah, the, it was L-E-R-I, and it was named after we had been reading um, some Timothy Leary. So at the time, this is pre-Arrowhead and pre, you know, uh, the the wealth of information that you have available today to kind of study these things on your own or what have you. And our library happened to have our university library in Iowa happened to have a couple books by Timothy Leary. Um, and uh, there was a couple of essays that he had written while he was imprisoned, um, where he modeled himself as Commodore Leary, L-E-R-I, and he was a character who was visiting, from, you know, from a planet in orbit around the dog star Sirius, and he lands on Earth, and they don't understand his strange ways, and so of course their only reaction to his kind of, you know, his unusual look at, ways of looking at the world were to throw him into jail, and that was his metaphor for his situation being kind of a, you know, an outsider in the world of psychedelic research. By that point, he'd been well past the point of being thrown out of Harvard. And so, you know, uh, he had a bunch of books kind of, you know, a bunch of books and essays ranging from, you know, the early part of his career where he's doing the uh, psychedelic book, the dead type stuff to his later essays that became more politicized. And we were a bunch of 19 year old kids who kind of had no idea how, you know, what, what to think about all this stuff. It was a very strange uh, kind of way to orient ourselves. So we figured, you know, there had to be some other way to learn uh, more about these experiences than from, you know, 30 year old or 20 year old writings from a, a guy who was, you know, kind of way, way out on the edge. We wanted to talk to people like ourselves. Yeah, did you even realize that Timothy Leary was still around when you guys were doing this or you were, you were, you were really enchanted with the old school Timothy Leary. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, 
when I look over your work, I, I, I was trying to pin what, what your uh, influences were in your writing and, and where you came from in your ideas about drugs. And it seemed like it was sort of the uh, Timothy Leary, Robert Anton Wilson, Hawking Bay it, yeah, sort of conglomerate. Of, it, it became a lot more Robert Anton Wilson for us, or at least for me personally. Like, I remember thinking that, um, you know, the combination of Prometheus Rising and Quantum Psychology. I remember those two books by Robert Anton Wilson. What is Prometheus Rising? Well, that's, it's, 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 it's Robert Anton Wilson's take on the Eight Circuit Theory of Consciousness, mm-hmm. which is just a model, you know, the, of ways of looking at spiritual elevation that can, can or, or spiritual mm-hmm. might be a strong word, so but the ways a, that you move a, through. It's a pseudo-scientific understanding of, 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 of brain activation based on Leary's yeah, ex- Eight Circuit model. Exactly. Extremely pseudo. I mean, to the, you know, the, the, the thing that's useful about it is not, not that it is, describes reality precisely, but that it just gave everybody for a brief period of time in our group like a shared vocabulary so you could at least say, oh, yeah, I'm having a Fifth Circuit experience and maybe elements of the Sixth Circuit get, ex- you know, activated and blah, 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 and you kind of felt like you knew what other people were talking about. But I mean, I one of my earliest essays was writing a, a, a little piece where I took each of the circuits and mapped it to a character from Gilligan's Island. And <laughs> <laughs> your way through from Gilligan is circuit one all the way in the professor is circuit three and bought and you know, ginger is circuit ginger five, has to be yeah, you know, the sensual circuit, circuit right, yeah. yeah just totally you know riffing on that and uh so all of leary's archetypes come true on gilligan's that's Island. right that's exactly right so you can that essay somewhere up on the web so, <laughs> um so but anyway. there was Robert Anton Wilson, uh, and you guys also had this sort of, uh, I see Hakeem Bay thrown around in there a little bit because of the idea of like these temporary autonomous zones and being able to create a space where the rules are bent and broken. That's right. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we used, we used to describe Leary as a place with, um, some, it had semi-permeable boundaries in the sense that you kind of accepted anything that could find it. And it didn't have, and it became what I would consider to be part of its, you know, its Achilles heel in its later years was that same factor that it let kind of anything through that could find it. And over the course of time, too many so, sort so of rogue elements Leary, snuck in. When you of, say anything through that could find it, you mean any kind of weirdo that was attracted that's to right. a particular no, that's weirdo exactly magnet. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> So for better or for worse, you know, <laughs> I, you know, so... Uh, plenty of magic kind of wandered into the community that way. And for many, many years, you know, I mean, we met, you met Paco Zander, Nathan, I met Paco that way. And what was and the magazine that he was doing? That he was then? publishing a magazine called Fringeware Review. Fringeware, that's that was right. actually sort of my first print um, experience was being, a, I was a contributing editor from issue one of, of Fringeware. And there was actually a Leary issue of Fringeware. Which where, was all where I think I heard about you. Yeah. We were, we, we, we were in disguise at that point. And so that's called, we called ourselves gravity in mm-hmm. that, uh, in that magazine, in that issue. And, and if you see some of my writings today on the web from the, that era, I've kind of painted it all as gravity. It doesn't really matter. I, I just like the, um, it's an easier way to communicate the meme actually than Leary, which a lot of people find kind of arcane in today's day and age. But, but the idea of a, you know, so you, imagine you had this disparate little cell of kids in Iowa who, you know, were experimenting with what I'd call forbidden technology and had no idea how to interpret the data that they were getting back. And they right. felt relatively alone in that environment in the Midwest very conservative part of the world and by using the internet we were able to connect with disparate pockets that were like us in 
all parts of the country, certainly up and down the Midwest, but also on the coasts. And, and it became much less over the course of time about those experiences, you know, as they pertain to chemicals or whatnot, and more about this sort of endless quest to find a community that would be satisfying. And, and it, the gravity of it ultimately pulled a bunch of us into different, like, larger uh, metropolitan areas. So you'd get bigger cities that would accumulate so right. there was then, a There was a Leary, there was a, a period where Leary was gathering tribe members, and then there was a great diaspora when the tribe members went to New York, Austin, Seattle, uh, Chicago. Chicago, San Francisco, and then and then you guys would have uh, little islands where you could hop to, yeah, where you could like travel to each city, and there would always be a group of people there where you could go and crash with and hang out with who would, yeah, and and then you know so this is me kind of you know this potentially revisionist history because it's just one person's perspective, but the 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 beautiful thing that emerged after we'd found those little pods, those little vessels of, you know, people who were kind of floating, was that they would then connect with larger local communities in each mm-hmm. of those cities. And then pretty soon it was so diffuse, uh, the connection back to the larger internet pod wasn't as compelling or as necessary. It had kind of done the work that we had always wanted. You know, when we were kids, we were hoping we were, you know, spreading seeds of some kind of community. And I feel like in a lot of different ways, we succeeded in a few different cases. It fell apart in kind of some locales, but. But when you came to Seattle, you found, um, well, you eventually ran across the church of Mez, which was Mez's little internet group that he had sort of, he and his circle of friends had put together. They were completely separate from Larry and then suddenly they became sort of like almost the same entity. I, I, well, they, 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 I they don't know if that's of, the way to put it so much as a bunch of us kind of jump ship. You and jump basically ship. said, we're going to convert to this this shiny new cult that was more <laughs> a bunch of, you know. Technical. And Ram Islam was on the show uh, a couple months ago talking about his new book. And uh, people in Seattle, we feel like familiar with Nez. Everybody knows Nez. Did he talk at all about that era? No, no, we just talked yeah. about the book, but not too much. Just, yeah. just a little tantalizing. I, I think the main thing was that the Mesbians were, were not um, a psychedelic-oriented group the way the Learys were, and the Mesbians had a lot of technology in common. They were a bunch of, you know, they still are a bunch of brainiacs and scientists and researchers and technology professionals. And then, But they have their, their entire crew of artists and athletes and kind of amazing. So it's it's a it's a bigger mishmash of, of influences, whereas Leary was always kind of held together by this Somewhat it was sort of thread, like you know. drugs, experimental collaborative fiction, um, some sort of experimental theater and performance. Well, we ch- I think we tried, and we had a couple of years at Burning Man where we made some pretty good art happen as a crew. Um, Speaking of Burning Man, I want to jump here. This is something uh, I wanted to let people know. You are a, a very accomplished vocalist. You're a singer. You've been in many acapella groups. You've recorded and uh, produced many acapella tracks. You also appeared as Judas in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar at a Burning Man production directed by Mark Pesci. That's right. It was actually called DJ Christ Superstar. DJ Christ and... Superstar. And when you had to sing your your your, uh, your solo, there was a huge wind and dust storm that came over the camp for the five minutes that you were doing your... My first solo. Your yeah. first solo. You can see some of that stuff on the internet. But, um, <laughs> and what did you do? Well, um, you, you just have to sing right into the face of it. You don't have a lot of choice. But um, I, I always look back at um, DJ Christ Superstar as one of the finest examples of sort of true community theater that I've done because nobody nobody involved was doing theater professionally. Not even me. I don't do theater professionally, even though my degree is in theater. But... Um, you know, Pesci, um, I think he and Eric Davis came up. That's that's the project I meant, both he and Eric. Um, 
they had come up with this vision of Jesus as a DJ and Judas as a speed freak and the disciples are, are raver kids. And uh, um, so it was a blend of, you know, really heavily produced techno tracks that we were singing to. Some of the tracks had a live band. and uh, But there was a really serious um, uh, Jewish contingent that was trying to um, highlight the, the, the sort of spiritual aspects of the show from the Judaic perspective. And the hope had been that the Last Supper would actually be um, you know, kind of a legitimate right. It didn't actually kind of work out that way once we finally got it done. But, but Wait, the, 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 uh, there was a Jewish contingent within the cast and crew. That that's right, within the cast. Oh. Like, well, the, uh, who were really who really wanted a message of of faith to come. I don't know that that's what they wanted so much as they wanted to lend a sense of ritual to some of the scenes that see, that I could see. be more authentic than you might get in some productions where that are overly Christianized. And, uh, but, you know, sort of my fondest memory of that is that, uh, the crucifixion, the, sta- the intent for the staging of the crucifixion that Pesci had come up with, um, was we, there were, there, we were going to build the monolith from 2001 and have it be, be a freestanding thing that Jesus would lead a parade of the disciples through the crowd and then there'd be a slit cut in the monolith. And so from the perspective of the crowd, Jesus would disappear into the monolith. And uh, so we got it built and we've been rehearsing all week. And there's, it was like Wednesday before the show and it's middle of the day, we're taking a break. A whole bunch of us were sitting on stage and the monolith was built, this giant steel um, girders that had black rubber nailed to it all the way around so that you could pull a flap open. And we sat there and watched this dust devil come across <laughs> and aim straight for the monolith. And it didn't, it just went straight for the monolith. It swirled and swirled and swirled and swirled and ripped every piece of rubber off and then immediately dissipated. And uh, one of our friends, you know, one of this so-called Judaic contingent kind of just said, well, that's clearly a sign that we don't need the monolith as our image here. We're just going to walk through the shell because we didn't have time to go back out and deal with it. Um, yeah, that, those were sort of times. Yeah, it's it's funny. You can plan and plan and plan for something to happen in Burning Man, and then when you actually get there, Burning Man has its own plans about yeah, what it's going to sure. do with you. And uh, I was in the audience during that, and I was uh, a little bit high on LSD that night. And when you started singing your first solo and that dust storm hit, I, uh, it, it took me a minute to think, is this actually happening? Because it was, it was blowing, everything was blowing me, like, like, like the, like the tents, you could see tents rolling over, blowing away in mm-hmm. the distance. And Scotta, without breaking stride, runs up to the front of the stage and just sings louder into the face of the storm. And he's like, like at the front of the Titanic. <laughs> you know, yeah. singing into this, this howling storm that lasted literally just until your, your piece ends. And then you walk off stage and the storm yeah. blows away. Somebody showed me heaven on their mind. This was <laughs> sitting up on the internet recently and I hadn't remembered that. And uh, my character in the, sh- in that scene, I think it's the same song that we're talking about, um, is smoking from a speed pipe. Yeah. He's, that's how it starts. Yes. Yeah, so he starts the show and he's got these two dancers that are supposed to be his psyche. And, uh, one of my friends came up afterwards. He'd been there and he goes, I can't believe you, you were sp- smoking all that speed in the show. And I'm like, I was miming. I was, I had to sing. There's no possible way that I would smoke anything during, you know, a show. And he goes, no way. I saw all of the smoke being exhaled from your lungs over and over and over. And I'm like, I, I wasn't even miming it. We'd experimented in rehearsal with like, you can, you know, like smoke niacin or there's, there's different powders that are not, they're not toxic in the way that tobacco is and you can get an effect, but it didn't work with me for it as a singer. And he just kept insisting, no oh, man, clouds of, of speed smoke were everywhere. I'm like, how is <laughs> letting you get away with that? I'm like, I'm not going to argue. 
Yeah, it's the, yeah. the things people see from as long the stage. Yeah, the stagecraft, right? Yeah, the stagecraft was such so that I, you know, during the storm, I was seeing like like um, you know, demon horns and the lighting through the smoke coming up behind you, and I was like, is this? Was this something that they that they planned to do? Was this having all this dust up on stage there to make these sort of weird lights coming through? And it was no, it's all accidental, yeah. all just you know accidental Burning Man stagecraft. So, yeah, that was amazing that that all came off the way it did. That's um, probably you know there was probably a thousand people in the crowd that night, and I'll probably never play you know for an audience that big ever again. <laughs> but I mean, I'm certainly looking. At, I look back on all of the flaws and all the things that went wrong, but some so much about it was quite magical and kind of amazing. But you've put on you've put on. A um, one-man shows. You've written plays. You've produced independent plays. Uh, you put on a play, I think, every year at Annex Theater, don't you? I mean, for the last, I think, five years running or four. I'm currently on a good stretch with a local French theater company that's been around for like 26, 27 years. And they're like, so far, the pattern has been that I pitch something every year that gets accepted, but it's not a, a given thing. In fact, I'm leaving here today to go pitch later this afternoon for next season. And they've been letting me do... Um, science fiction theater, which isn't super common, um, but we're kind of getting away with a lot of different types of stories. We did a, a play called Duel of the Linguist Mages, where yes, the, the premise that. was that these characters have realized that punctuation marks are actually a species that is symbiotically <laughs> helping them control thought. You know, we, we, do, we do some Well, I love, I love the idea stuff. in Duelist of the, uh, Duel of the Linguist Mages, is that there's a there's a level of mastery over the control of language where you start speaking in a, like some sort of Ursprock that is, mm-hmm. that just commands people to do things like they're hearing the voice of God. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. Just trying to figure out how to stage all this. And then what happens when you have two people like that and fighting each other? And the answer is duel with the linguist major. Right. <laughs> Yeah, very clever. Yeah, I was uh, I was explaining that uh, your every every play that you write is is sort of like a a Twilight Zone episode that gets like pushed up to the next level. You nice. know where you actually see you actually find you you know you break through the director's booth and you see the people who are actually writing the Twilight Zone and they're in the Twilight Zone too. It's, you know, it's nice. like these meta layers of things going on. So all of yeah, those plays and you are available your, on the internet. Yeah, none of your plays have any. Um, I mean, they don't have any pretense of saying. We're going to suspend your disbelief now, and this could really happen somewhere. No, no it always comes out flat. This is just a really absurd premise that we're going to pitch you, and we're just going to we're going to pull it along as far as we can take it, and you know, right. deliver some laughs and some big ideas, and and uh, and I think that's what people have come to expect, and that's why it's really enjoyable. Where for me, I find a lot of theater overly earnest and hard to swallow because it's like. Am I supposed to be feeling what the person who's playing the character is feeling or what the character is feeling? And I can't always get that suspension of disbelief. And in your plays, it's always really more about the ideas that people are, are bouncing off each other. And that's a, that's a lot more fun, I think, than... Um, well, I had someone ask me, too, why, because it's so idea-driven, why I don't write books. And, and I had to kind of say, well, it's because I'm a terrible prose stylist, but I have an ear for dialogue. And that's right. You write dialogue like Joss, like Joss Whedon writes dialogue. Well, it's, it's very flattering. Thank well, you. I mean, because but he can't really write good action scenes. Well, we can have this debate all day. And on the budgets that I get, action scenes aren't coming up, so it doesn't really matter to me. But. So let's talk about the craft of low-budget webisode making. Let's do that, now, was your first your first foray into low budget filmmaking tales from the trip side? It sure was. Now, what? How did you get the idea to make? I, there's tales a very the specific side? reason. So, I'm a huge monkeys nerd. I uh, love the monkeys. And uh, Michael Nesmith uh, uh, released um, a video on VHS 
one of the very first VHS tapes ever released that was straight to video that didn't get a theatrical release mm-hmm. first called Elephant Parts. And it was a collection of his sketch comedy stuff interspersed with some music videos because he also helped invent music videos. Mm-hmm. And uh, But he had three or four solid drug-soaked sketches in Elephant And he, Parts. his music videos were kind of parody videos. No, no, no. These were legitimate music videos. Oh, that's of, right. A lot I of people don't realize like Michael Nesmith had this incredible career throughout the 70s and, and 80s and was one of the founders of MTV, and he was releasing videos in Europe before anybody understood about it in America, and he was really... He was very into the media technology. Yeah, he was, a, he was kind of a forefather, and so Elephant Parts actually won the very first Grammy Award for music video. When the category was invented, he was the first person who won it, and they kind of invented the category in response to what he was demonstrating about how you could use music video. But he was also a complete nutball and had an incredibly <laughs> zany sense of humor. And so he released these sketches that in today's world would never make it onto, you know, Saturday Night Live, where, you know, we've in some ways become more conservative about drug humor than we used to be in the 70s, where, you know, Cheech and Chong and some other types of comedy existed. But He was making what would be considered um, a, a funnier dive video. That's but exactly back, right. But, but back, back before you had like that platform. 80s. Right. Yeah. yeah. So one of the one of the big examples is he did a, a game show parody called Name That Drug. And so on the one hand it's a hippie, and on the other hand, Michael Nismith is playing a DEA agent mm-hmm. and they're passing out, you know, hits of certain types of marijuana and they're trying to identify what brand it is, and eventually the DEA agent kind of falls off you know, his stool. And they did another one called Elvis Drugs, which is a little parody of the Flintstone chewable vitamins but they're for adults and they're little chewable guitars that actually have like, you know, barbiturates in them. And <laughs> so uh, these things, Elvis drugs, Elvis drugs just, yeah, just like Elvis. Just types. exactly. So okay. this thing, these, this type of comedy no, was, appealed to me. At was, was Michael Nesmith historically a big head? I mean, I know that the monkeys did used to drop a lot of acid at one point. You, yeah. You're talking about a man who started in a movie called head. So um, <laughs> they, yeah, they, they, you know, I, I wasn't there. I can't speak to the amount of drugs that they did in the day or whatever. I just know um, anecdotally, you know, that uh, they like in, if you watch the movie head, there's a sequence where they become very small and they get sucked into a vacuum cleaner where they find an enormous spliff right. sitting there that they pass around <laughs> and stab with a little needle, you know, El Zumo. And it's like clearly there's some familiarity with that. And in the, I think in, I think there was a monkey's movie made. Uh, That's what I'm talking about his head. No, 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 no. A, a movie about the monkeys that uh-huh. was made for TV movie about the history of the monkeys. And there's like scenes of them um, coming up with the idea of head for, was it Jack Nicholson? Yeah, Jack Where Nicholson. Where they are like dropping the, acid with Jack Nicholson and smoking pot and like writing that's sketches. Exactly, that's the, anecdotally, that's right. what it, that's what the public <laughs> record is. Nicholson, Rafelson, and the monkeys were sitting around smoking and doing acid. And they, they came up with an amazing movie. <laughs> that, so, that, that I think made $35 the made, opening night. That's exactly right. But it's, you know, it's, it's since become a cult classic. I, I went down, they did like a, they did a remaster like 20 year anniversary uh, screening of it in Los Angeles and we flew down and Davey and Peter were there we got to uh, you know hear their some of their stories and so back to Tales from the Trip yes side. please elephant parts Tales from the, so the Tales from the Trip side was our low budget like let's do an hour this is when we were all about drugs this is when we were we were, when we, were we were we were publishing Trip Magazine and I think we were in, I was in the middle of trying to get another issue out and you know worried about all the normal things that I worry about as a publisher like content getting the cover getting all this stuff getting dealing with the and out of the blue, Scotto says, hey, I'm going to make a comedy DVD with psychedelic drug sketches. And I'm going, what? What is the market for this? And you said, we're going to create the market. <laughs> 
Now, how long did it take you to write it's, and shoot and edit all of it? Uh, you do you most know, of it all of yourself. That's, it's that level of enthusiasm that's, you know, suckered me into doing any number of projects over the years. I think I've tempered my uh, expectations, but when I was younger, I always had hopes. Um, I, it found an audience, but uh, who knows? You know, so it's still like a... How, how long did it take it took, you? It's like a couple months, right? It took me a couple months to shoot, but it was all sort of weekends and nights and dragging people all over the city. And I used some, you know, a bunch of my theater friends here locally were very game to kind of dive in and do some of this goofy ass comedy. Um, and since we, since those days, we put it up on the internet and. Yeah, it's on the, YouTube. You can Google Tales from the Tripside and especially Thorazine the Clown, <laughs> which is one of, one of the most, most enduring sketches. Thorazine the Clown, it's funny because it was a half a page script originally, and uh, the actor who was scheduled to play Thorazine couldn't make it, and so I decided I would step in and play Thorazine instead. And it wound up being like a five-minute sketch because it kept ad-libbing and ad-libbing and ad-libbing and ad-libbing, <laughs> and a bunch of it was funny, and we decided to keep it. So, yeah, Thor, I mean, I, someone told me later, well, the whole idea of like a clown who's like a total jerk or whatever it's like it's been done and i'm like it i doesn't don't know matter. that it matters if it's been done because <laughs> i don't know that this particular clown has been done well, um and i still get the most of my views on my youtube channel come from tales from the trip side and uh somebody finally um jumped on the good old-fashioned lsd sketch so we had a series of sketches where we were pretending to do commercials for popular psychedelic drugs and somebody got really really mad uh about the good old-fashioned lsd one and reported me to youtube and so they pulled it down um and art got mad about what that this we is, this pitching, is, a, this we is a, you're actually drug. advocating drugs they didn't see the parody in it so <laughs> we, we'd hit like a hundred thousand views on that video and then they yanked it and so you know just turned around that and, got a hundred thousand views that was that series, they range, you know, oh, they don't all get, but good old fashioned LSD got a thousand, you know, because some of those, you know, YouTube is good about surfacing good keyword rich content. And so people are looking for LSD videos. This one probably circulate, circulated quite a bit, but you can still see good old fashioned uh, mushrooms, good old fashioned DMT is up there and it all kind of good old fashioned ketamine. And it eventually culminated with good old fashioned radioactive waste where you see people actually feeding <laughs> out of their mouths by the time the sketch is over. So we took it to its illogical conclusion. All right. Now I want to, there's one more, one more sketch that was sort of a, a, a trip magazine inside joke that came out, uh, that came to fruition in Tales from the Chip Side, which was, um, 2TC Special G. Now, where did the concept of 2TC Special G come from? Uh, I don't, so, I'm not, I don't, I can't, uh, this was a Leary in joke for a long time. <laughs> I have my belief in who invented it, but I can't say for sure. I don't necessarily want to, you know, it was one of our chemist friends, let's put it that way, in the crew who, you know, we always used to joke about how, you know, what are you doing this week? Oh, I'm doing some, et cetera, amines. Yeah. Well, this is, this or, is, you this know, so is 2TC very, special G began. Yeah, okay. So, so the Leary crew and Scotto's crew is for as long as I knew Scotto was a young man, especially, um, they would find, uh, research chemicals and do them like going to see a movie. Like, hey, we've got this new research chemical this weekend. You guys want to hang out and do it? And then let's, you know, watch a marathon of something at the same time. Yeah. And we, it was, and it was very much that was, that was your, your form of entertainment. And I that think was for, your recreation for a good period of time. For a good period of my youth, I would say that that was true. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and so, um, it was always these weird 2C chemicals or 2, 2CI, 2CB, a lot of Shulgin chemicals and a lot of, you know, 4OH, 4 acetoxy DET, DIPT, and just stuff with weird stuff. So where did... All the alphabetamines. So alphabetamines, yeah. So 2TC special G 
that just became a recurring joke, you know, you was for whatever the craziest new, that's new right. thing was. And, um, and I think at one point, uh, John Hanna and I were going to, uh, we wanted to start this new, the rumor of this new drug, like, you know, smoking banana peels. And I said, I said to him, have you heard of 2TC Special G? And he said, yeah, I have. What is, what is that? And I said, well, there yeah, you go. Man. It already exists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, um, a lot of, a lot of funny stuff like that, um, came out of the Leary community. Uh, I was looking at something. Uh, this this um, MDMA poster. Some people uh, have seen this MDMA poster that we we made for Trip Magazine. This actually was a collaborative idea. People always ask me who came up with that MDMA spoof poster, and I think it was uh, you and me and Bug and Manted at a party at Darren Stummy's house, sitting around spoofing on ideas and I think I think maybe Bug and I sat down and started writing the copy at one point and it just came together in in you know uh, my laptop at some point but uh, a lot of a lot of trip magazine came together like that because we were all just trying to get like you like you you know when you do below low budget video productions you're trying to get everybody to do everything for free yeah you know on and on the weekends because everybody's got real job and uh I, when I when I was putting the magazine together people kept saying you know are you ever going to do another magazine you can do another magazine and it's like it's like putting together a garage band you know, you gotta have the bass, you gotta have the drummer, you gotta have the bass player, you gotta have the guitarist, and they all gotta get together every week and practice. And if you don't have somebody in there working on it, it just sort of falls apart. And, uh, you know, people, during this time when we were putting together Trip Magazine, I'm amazed at the stuff that we produced, considering the sort of haphazard way we went about doing it. Um, looking back on it, it's really kind of a good, it's a good body of work to have, to have behind us. I mean, I was looking through this and I had forgotten all the interviews that you did. I mean, you went out and interviewed, uh, Rick Strassman and, uh, and a lot of people just for the editorial content. And that's not what your thing was. I mean, do you remember, I mean, you're, you're, I don't think you ever thought, yeah, I'm going to go out and like interview all these people and learn, no, learn all this stuff. And you were never more, you were never like a very academic guy. You were never like, I'm going to be a shaman. You were never like, uh, <laughs> you were never like, I'm going to go be a Tibetist monk and learn how to control my mind. You were very much more, uh, sort of a, like a, just really in it for the fun. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was younger too, I had, you know, certainly more of an ego and thought that I could be a contributor to the culture by, you know, helping to edit this magazine and kind of putting my little funny essays in there. You know, the, the short stories, Timothy Leary's floating head coming back. <laughs> Just trying to add some sense of let's make it be let's make it a little let's, surreal. Yeah, add add that quality so that it's not just an academic journal. And uh, but I certainly felt like I wanted you know I wanted to help contribute to the scene that I was so enamored with when I was growing up. And over the course of time, that's become you know less and less important. Um, well, yeah, we kind of you kind of go through the scene and you you figure out where it's there and you realize, oh, it's really not that big. There's you know not that much going on there, and then you know you live the rest. <laughs> you go out and live live the rest of your life. But when I was I was looking through these magazines and I was trying to like come up with like touchstone moments of 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 our working together on it, and I'm remembering all of the conferences we went to and standing mm-hmm. behind the table and talking to people trying trying to pitch this thing and. Um, and just the weird, crazy people that we would meet, and we were like, "These are our subscribers." <laughs> yeah. And uh, especially, what would you say the the low point of those four? I was? mean, you must remember the low point was going to Hempfield. <laughs> 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 
feeling that I don't feel like that was a slur on our subscribers. I don't think any of our subscribers came up to us. I think it was all it was a steady, steady, steady stream of stoners who come by our booth and we'd have all these magazines with this incredibly beautiful psychedelic art and stacks of DVDs and t-shirts and posters and they'd be like, are you giving anything out for free? <laughs> Like, no, we're running a small business. And then, oh, or or and then it would say up. Trip Magazine. We had a big banner that said Trip Magazine. And they'd come up and say, what do you guys do here? <laughs> <laughs> see, see where it says Journal of Psychedelic Culture. Yeah, but what is it? Right. <laughs> well, do you see these magazines that are sitting on this table? Oh. You could buy one. Oh, I don't oh, have anybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... I think that was. I think you and I sat there, and we realized that we had missed our demographic somehow <laughs> by a wide, wide <laughs> I remember one of we used, to, we used to do these mailing parties where we'd get together and it'd be time to send out the magazine. And I remember those were good times when the magazine was printed, and everybody would get together, usually at my place, and we would sit in the living room in a circle and stuff envelopes and check out the magazine. And the, so, I'm, you know, I'm, out of concerns for privacy, I'm not going to mention who this person is, but one of our subscribers I recognize, he was an actor who had been in Twin Peaks and oh, right. uh, a couple of other science fiction shows that I watched. And, and uh, I was like, dude, we are totally making a difference here. No, yeah. Because uh, we uh, on our subs- members of a show that was one of the trivia shows in history. One of them subscribed to our magazine. Yeah. And um, we, I, I found uh, actually in after the fact, at least um, two or three people who are famous Hollywood producers, behind-the-scenes kind of people, were subscribers to our magazine. And, well, I, uh, I just think it only validates our work because famous people were subscribers. Famous, so famous people up really know that. Oh yeah, and um, so uh, let's see. I think you 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 eventually sold about a uh, thirty thousand copies of Tales from the Ships. I don't think that's true because I think we only printed a run of like a hundred copies, and I think we sold them all. I have, I have I have like three of them. Should we can do we can do the Criterion Collection um, DVD reissue where we go out and package it with special features, but. And um, so after you did Tales from the Tripside, um, it was a while before you did your next your next DVD your next web series. Yeah, we did a show called Cherub, the Vampire with Bunny Slippers, which was a parody of Joss Whedon's Angel, and uh, we did 25 episodes of it. Now, that was actually pretty big. I mean, you got a little bit of acclaim from it, that, especially because the, the fan community around Angel... Yeah, it was almost exclusively like that. It was. I was just describing this to somebody recently, that how, how strange that, that period of time was. So I was doing a play with a bunch of friends, and the day they announced the first video iPod, was like a moment, you know, in time where, the, oh my God, these devices support video and they're going to need content. And I said to all my friends, let's go make a parody web series. And blah, 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 you know, let's, well, I've got a bunch of costumes up in the attic and why? iTunes is going to be yeah. pushing video. And this was a period in time. So we released originally all 25 episodes, um, uh, on a, via a blog. Like, no, no, for people who have never seen Angel, Angel is a vampire with a soul. Yeah, that's which right. which which makes him care about humans. So he's a soft he's a softer, kinder vampire. And your take on this was as long as he had his bunny Cherub, slippers on. Cherub is an angel with bunny slippers, that's which right. makes him a little bit more of a gentler, can't take him quite seriously vampire. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so yeah, we had you know instead of Cordelia Chase, uh, we had Charity Case, and you know did the whole team did the parodies, had the little Buffy parody, and you know I think if you're a nerd, you you could uh, Buffy nerd. There were things to watch about it and to your point you know the fan community 
certainly uh, such as it is picked up on it to the point where we probably had a million downloads of the 25 episodes in total. Um, we can't prove it because this was a period of time where you could legitimately host your own like movie files and QuickTime files and not put them on YouTube because nobody understood yet the value of YouTube or right. is YouTube going to own my intellectual property? But we're going to make millions if we host it ourselves or whatever. Um, <laughs> So, you know, we certainly had a huge number of downloads that were solely just fan interest in Joss. They're not mm-hmm. interested in me, and none of that carries over to any other project that I've ever done in my life. But we certainly had, at the time, I was living in a house that had a six-car garage as this weird structure in the backyard. And so that's, oh, where, the we, barn, right. yeah, so that's where we set the clubhouse. So we had a location that we could just be immersive and, and do all 25 episodes back there. Um so we did finally put that stuff on YouTube, and it gets a little trickle of of, of uh, traffic today, but nothing like back in the day when when the fans were actively talking about it. And um, so you did share for I think it was like three seasons. It was two seasons. Two, two seasons. Two you shared twelve twelve episodes in this bonus episode. It was I think it was it was like thirteen in the first episode or in the first season and twelve in the second season. And then now, what made you decide to do go back to that and do the coffee table? Well, and should, how does the coffee table differ from your previous projects? What did you learn? Well, let's talk about. Well, first, let's describe what the coffee table is. So, um, um, the coffee table is my newest web series. Um, it's uh, season one is fifteen five minute episodes, and it's sort of a Doctor Who meets the Greatest American Hero type <laughs> of story. So, the premise is you have a family who discovers that their coffee table is actually an ancient alien artifact, and they inadvertently trigger it, and it teleports them and their house deep into the heart of the void. <laughs> and so they've got. They're in a floating house, which is kind of, you know, the rough equivalent of a TARDIS, but they don't know how to operate this artifact. They don't know how to get home and they will starve to death. And pretty soon aliens start showing up, ringing their doorbell, asking about this strange coffee table. Now, now tell me about the cutting edge special effects that, you, <laughs> that you've incorporated into uh, well, the coffee table. Well, so to be clear, like when we when we shot Cherub, the, the, one of the main reasons we want, I wanted to shoot a parody is because it's really forgiving of of production values. It's almost on purpose. You right, get right. away with seeing, you seeing, corny, seeing the edges and seeing the boundaries or whatever, yeah. But I've been writing, you know, a lot of sort of uh, science fiction theater, like we discussed earlier, and I just wanted to try something more ambitious with uh, the form, mm-hmm. something that actually, you know, had a bit of a budget or what have you. Um, we did an Indiegogo campaign and a private ask for some friends. And, you know, we, we very naively, uh, you know, we raised a, a small amount of money thinking that we could get away with it. And it turned out that I was very, very naive and that the minute you're not telling a complete parody, it's still a comedy. It's a comedy web series. Right. But it, you, we do care about the characters. You want to see what happens to them and how they, right. are they going to make it home and what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, Suddenly, you do have to take care with with a lot more of production values than I had the experience to uh, necessarily. Right. If it's not a parody, you need to manage your own history and timeline and the internal integrity of the yeah, characters way more than you need to. But do. so the short answer to well, how did you do it? Is we just you know we worked with a bunch of really talented people. So um, our special effects guy who did all. Of, so one of the premises was that we would incorporate a bunch of good, solid, practical special effects. And we got a local filmmaker who's a, a Stranger Genius Award winner, Webster Crowell, to come in and help us teach us how to work with models and work with light and do, you know, some really crafty analog effects without spending a ton of money because we didn't have very much. And then we did hire a visual effects person to come in and, and, um, he, his name is Adam Harum. He's one of the masterminds behind a web uh, parody series called Transsolar Galactica. Mm, right, I've heard of that. If you look at it, you can see the visual effects on it are just, they're amazing. And he, so he came in and did a visual effects sweep through our show to make sure, um, you know, that it looks nice because there's a ton of, you know, the green screen works. 
So right. they're in the living room of this house. Um, kind of the premise of the show is one of the things I was thinking was in television, there's this concept of a bottle episode mm-hmm. where if you've got 12 episodes of television and you want your fin- and they all have an average budget per episode and you want your last episode to go out with a bang, you're going to have to steal money from some other episode to put it in the finale, let's say. And so that episode will often be a bottle episode. They'll you film just use with this, everybody stuck in an elevator. Just the, the standing right. sets that they've already built. So right. they don't have to build any and they don't get any guest stars and they don't specifically going out on location this is costly and i thought well let's just do a bottle show uh because we'll keep everybody in one location but we'll still try to do some very far out psychedelic science fiction storytelling which is you you green screen the window and so yeah for 10 days our house had green screen on all the (laughs) houses we had this swampy you know kind of ooky feel in the house when when you're just trying to be a person you know and then (laughs) then everybody would come in and we'd be shooting and it, it would all make sense and so but yeah that what that literally means is that every time you know throughout the entire first season someone's looking at a window it's an effect shot and then there's other effect shots that are layered in with some of the aliens that we experience and some of the things that the coffee table can do. But the hero prop itself, the actual coffee table, is this enormous piece of art. It took five artists four weeks and a significant chunk of the the money that we'd raised to build this beautiful thing that has to be able to sustain. It wasn't just a coffee of- table that you got at Goodwill. <laughs> it sure wasn't. <laughs> Nope, it has to sustain a form where it's kind of, it's got, it's closed and it's got a frame, but then the actors can take the frame off and they can look inside of it. And we've got to be able to do camera close ups on it repeatedly. And it becomes, so a, it's the star of the show. It becomes a character. Right. Yeah. And it, there's a point in time where, you know, we built, we also had to build, um, so a bunch of the, the scenes take place on the front porch of my house. You know, we were shooting in my house where, mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of the footage had to happen on the front porch, but we couldn't do it outside because you can't control for sound or lights. So we actually built a three quarters replica of the front porch of my house <laughs> that we set up on a sound stage so that we could control. And we had this two story green screen set up so that we could do shots against it. And, uh, and, uh, at one That's point so in time, classic, Oh, let's just build the house on the sound stage. Yeah. The, the, the running joke was that our set designer, Ian Johnston had built a set up front porch that was, significantly sturdier than our existing porch. And at the end of the shoot, we should rip our porch off and install his. Um, but it is three quarter size. And, you know, so anyway, the, the upshot is the, you know, the style of the show is very, very zany. And, and yet at the same time, the four characters that are the heart of this family, you really do wind up sort of captivated by what happens. And, and uh, it ends in a giant cliffhanger at season one. It was always intended to be a season, a beginning, a middle and an end. And if we are lucky and can do another season, we might be able to finish the story. So, so how are you going to go about trying to get another season? Well, we're probably going to have to uh, do a Kickstarter. Um, that's kind of the main way, and go back to everybody with go kind back of, to the, go back to the funding model. Yeah, you know, go back to the people who co-produced this originally and say we've learned a lot. We know a lot more now than we did then, and uh, we're gonna. But we also know that we need to raise more money than we did then because I wound up paying for a huge amount of it just out of pocket, and uh, we'll just go back and say, you know, here are the things that we can. And do. you're releasing the coffee table on DVD season one. It's actually going to be free on the internet. So oh, it's free. If you on go the to the coffee table TV. We've got a website up, and you'll be able to see all 15 episodes for free. And then if you really feel like you want a DVD, it's got just captivating commentary by yours truly and so other <laughs> DVD only special features that you can, you can get, then you can, then you can PayPal us some money and we'll ship you a DVD, but it's all intended to be free. I think that's the whole, you know, the, the important thing here is there's no real profit model unless you're already famous for doing web content any more than there's it, it, the expectation is we're not going to make a zillion billion dollars right. on merch or whatever. We're not Felicia day. We're just a bunch of science fiction enthusiasts who wanted oh, a chance Felicia to tell stories. So, Cute. I know. She has, she has every advantage in the world. <laughs> we're 
hers. I'm an ugly, bitter old man, and I, I have none of her appeal. <laughs> now, uh, you recently, uh, I saw that you recently updated scotto.org. We had a little back and forth this week about some technical problems. But you've got links to uh, the coffee table. You've got links to the, the, the plays that you've just recently produced, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the linguist mages, and what was the one before that? Um, I had a bunch of plays. I had When I Come to My Senses, I'm Alive, which is a play right. about a woman who invents a way to digitally transmit her emotions. Oh, right, right, right. That inadvertently spawns a, a terrible AI. <laughs> uh, Interlaced Falling Star, which was a right. show set the at the they're... infinitely tall building it's in the center of the, the universe. Buildings, right? Yeah, the headquarters of the United Association of Interdimensionary Travelers. Um, and we just did a musical called A Mouse Who Knows Me about a geneticist who starts to think that the mice that she's been humanizing for research are starting to attain sentience. Oh, uh, And it turns out in, into this kind of interspecies West Side Story type of thing. Now, this is a musical that you wrote? I, wrote, I co-wrote it with Robertson Whitmer, who's a composer locally. Oh, and, uh, great. That, um, sounds, that sounds great. So all these plays are up, and, you know, there's no... Plus, you, um, you, you scored and produced your own wedding as a musical called Wedding the Musical. That's right. Which is, I don't know if anybody's ever done that before, but when you when you put it up on the internet, it did get a lot of buzz. People did go kind of crazy for that I, concept. I, yeah, I think it, Jen got us included in a book called Offbeat Brides that of that was being you know just a collection of kind of different weddings. Different, yeah, exactly. Hoping to kind of inspire people to to step outside. Yeah, but you have a wedding that was a musical that opened to a sold out audience and rave reviews. Well, <laughs> I didn't charge admission to my wedding. I'd like to point that out. <laughs> I did make, you know, everyone sign release forms, but that's really, yeah, know, that was, that was pretty, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's a proper musical because we were lip syncing to most of the music. Oh, well, we did, we did choreograph a lot of dance numbers and there was a couple of actual sung moments. We had a, a swing choreographer come in and do our first dance so that we could do a full blown, like flip you around kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. All that stuff's on the tubes on, on the internet. And um, you, um, one of the other interesting things about you is you started a company called Slam, which had some of the. <laughs> there's Jan Moon now. Yeah. Which had um, you had like one of the original streaming radio startups back yeah. in the day. Uh, in the uh, in the year 2000, Slam Media actually won um, best streaming audio at South by Southwest. That was kind of our highest moment, but we were actually trying to build YouTube before there was bandwidth. And right, yeah, you had this, you had this idea, early in you it. had this idea, and it was, it was during one of these weekends where we, we were taking all sorts of crazy drugs, I believe. <laughs> you had this vision that, hey, if we just made a place where people can upload their videos and, and their content, it was this hub, this media hub that would be like, like the new TV of the internet or, or whatever. And it was a vision that I think a couple people, I mean, a couple different places were, were trying to get to, but I think the one place that you really excelled was figuring out the streaming radio piece. Yeah. Was- you guys, you guys got the streaming radio piece and, um, you kind of carried that through with your music blog at comfortradio.org. Yeah, which I'm not, I haven't, I not, haven't been doing that. You, you haven't been doing that for a while, but you have a new music blog at much preferred customers. That's right. At Tumblr. Dot Tumblr.com. Yeah, much yeah. preferred customers. Now, what is what is the music blog thing all about? I mean, you uh, you've been a music fan for a long time, and you have a very eclectic taste. Probably one of the more eclectic tastes of anybody I know. What kind of music are you looking for and posting at, at much preferred customers? I don't know, man. There's just like there are certain songs that just pop out. So that's the whole thing is just a co- much preferred customers is a collection of tracks. You know, it's like. Here's a song that knocked me off off my feet. And it's not particularly genre based. It's just it's, it is eclectic across a set of genres. Um, 
But part of what's fun about it versus the days when I was doing like a movable type blog is, you know, just technology is cool. And being able to, with a click of a button, now you can post from SoundCloud, SoundCloud or Bandcamp or Vimeo or YouTube straight to Tumblr without having to think about it. And they do the formatting for you. And you, right, right. all that stuff makes it much more appealing to be a music blogger these days than it was back in the days when your posts, you, you have to write to, a bunch of HTML and right, you have to you right. know, actually clean it up yourself. Um, but yeah, I think the the important thing is like, I'm still, even though I haven't, comfort music was like one of the, in the year that uh, Matthew Perpetua invented Fluxblog, and I forget what year that was. So he was like the first music blogger of note. I was second generation. I was the year after that and part of that class of bloggers. And these days it's super duper duper prolific, but back at the time it certainly wasn't. There was a handful of people who were Yeah, doing there was like there was like fifteen music blogs. Yeah, and the thing about it started. was, you know, even if there were only a couple hundred, they were pretty well linked and you could eventually find the genres that you cared about. And and uh the the important thing was the difference between like what a lot of the music bloggers are doing and what sort of classic music reviews are like, you know, like the the, the true music journalism. It's not that bloggers don't attain some of that some of the time, but the point is they're most frequently telling you about the things they are enthusiastic about and they don't feel emboldened or they don't feel uh, that they're compelled to tell you about the things they don't like, unlike journalism, where they've got to cover things kind of like news. So it's really a, a journey through what people love and what they're right. currently fascinated with. And it just, it's more, to me, it's more compelling and kind of engaging when you're, you're in, you're just sucking down what someone is real. You may not, you know, love everything that they're posting, but it's that vibe of, I'm just trying to share the good stuff, curate the good stuff and get the good stuff out there. It's all about the artists. It's about promoting a scene and they talk about piracy and all this stuff. But man, back in the day, you know, I had a couple of run-ins with the, the so-called web sheriff. That and take down this post or whatever, some artist who didn't get it and they would want you to take down a track, but much more frequently the artists would write in and thank me for posting. And then eventually the artists are now sending it to me directly. And now labels are jumping in and now these are major labels that are sending me stuff. And, and then they understood the model. These tracks are cleared to post. And now people are putting up their entire albums on SoundCloud and you can hear them before you buy them. And so whatever the the culture's changed a lot in a lot of positive ways. Right. It seems like with a lot of things on the internet, you were so much of an earlier adopter. You were maybe five years ahead of the curve on everything that you're trying to introduce. It's made me rich beyond my (laughs) dreams in my heart. No, but it's funny because you started, you started internet streaming before, um, internet radio streaming before there was even any RIA ASCAP involvement. That's not actually true. Slam was actually licensed with the RIAA. We were one of their first, test cases for how you how do you go out to people who are indies like me and get them to commit to a reporting. So that was one of the major things we we built behind the scenes that nobody saw the reporting reporting system so that we could actually pay out. and, you know, but when you initially launched, you weren't considering that. That was like that was like into the phase of your launch. You realized I don't remember the chronology of it. I but I, I remember like they were curious enough about us that the RIAA actually flew me out to Washington D.C. to be interviewed by a bunch of their lawyers so that I could kind of go, well, here's what here's what your agreement states, and here's the here's how you're punching me in the face, but I'm still going to try to be legal about this. <laughs> And, 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 and you could just see, you know, you can't, you can't really tell because they're lawyers. So they're, you know, consummate sharks. You have no idea if you're making a difference, but, um, you know, certainly I believe in paying artists. And, and it's funny because I was just telling my friends the other day, like back in the day when I was young and I was poor and I was pirating music left, right, up and down, but the tools kind of sucked. Right. LimeWire and Napster were not fun to use. Mm -hmm. And these days, man, it's so easy to just have a subscription to eMusic or Rhapsody or, uh, you know, have a subscription to Hulu and Netflix and just like, you know, the content creators theoretically are someday getting, you know, 
I don't know. There's something, there's something to be said for if, if you make it convenient, people will use it. People yeah, will actually. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, it's funny. I, I don't know if I've downloaded a song in the past two years. Anytime I want to hear something, I just type it in and usually it's on YouTube. Yeah. And I can just boom, play it. And, uh, it's, it's funny because, uh, before I would, you know, you would have to go on one of these sharing sites and, it, and especially if it was the song that wasn't available on iTunes or anything back, back in the day, there, there just wasn't a huge catalog of music that you could buy online or even stream on requests. So it was, you just had to listen. You just had to pirate it. But yeah, uh, things are changing. It's, well, it's definitely a lot easier. YouTube is still kind of in this weird zone because a lot of the music up on YouTube is still pirated. It's not, <laughs> it's not clear how they get away with it. But right. by the same token, bands are actually now, like I'll often get a YouTube link as a band's first single on it's the official upload and they stuck it up there and it's good quality audio because it is so convenient and that's where people are searching for stuff. So. Yeah, and uh, the coffee table is up on YouTube. Um, I don't, yes, by this point in time, it should be up on YouTube. Fifteen right. episodes. So you can go to the coffee table TV. Uh, you can go to YouTube and look for tales from the trip side. You can go to scotto.org and find information about Scotto, or you can go to muchpreferredcustomers.tumblr.com. Scotto, there's just so many things you do. It's hard to keep up. Hard to crack that nut we call Scotto. <laughs> <laughs> But it's always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, we should be together more often, as always. And uh, I think that's it. Thanks for having me.